Color this Thanksgiving green, this Thanksgiving Eve, as we check the flights out of Metro. No delays, no cancellations, not one, you guys. Oh, my goodness. And the roads are dry. That's great. Good travel. For the busiest so, day of the travel. year. Good yeah, travel unless weather. you're headed to Upper New England, where, you know, they uh, New England, uh, <laughs> you're not going to face a problem, maybe Colorado. So you know, if you're yeah. headed out to the rock, Boston and New York probably gonna you may have some issues. There's some red They're dots there and cancellations. Yes. Yeah, that's that's that could be a problem. But uh, for those traveling here in the state of Michigan, the rain has left, so the <laughs> road should be dry. Uh, you, you may see in the next couple of days a little bit of lake effect, and the sun should break through tomorrow. This is according to Ashley Barrisi. Ashley, will come out I'm yeah, tomorrow. I'm holding you to this. <laughs> At 9 a.m., just in time for the kickoff of the parade, and the winds will be manageable enough that the big balloons should be fine. Because that's what I was worried about, winds and the balloons, so that's good. Right. And we won't be on the air, so we won't be generating any wind (laughs) here. (laughs) That'll be okay. Uh, Let's get to the breaking news of the day, and it is good news. It is a diplomatic breakthrough, uh, uh, along with Egypt and Qatar. The Biden administration can take a bow as they brokered a deal for hostages. It is a limited deal with a limited pause, but it will be a four-day cessation of hostilities. While aid can get in and hostages can get out, it is 50 Israeli hostages for 150 Palestinians, mostly women and young men under the age of 18 currently being held uh, by Israel. So this is a good thing. Make no mistake about it. Yes. It will allow Hamas to regroup. That's what I fear, too. But there is a there is a possibility here that Hamas, if it continues to release 10 hostages a day, Israel has agreed to extend. Right. There are incentives if they release more because we know there are more women and children than 50. Yes. And then, of course, the men are very important as well. So trying to get everyone out is the goal. And they gave gave this little incentive that if you release more, we'll hold off more. And it's going to be the most vulnerable of the hostages that were taken on October 7th. And we're not going to diminish the atrocity that that was. But it appears we will be hopefully getting them back probably sometime tomorrow, Jamie. They said Thursday. Thursday, yeah, was when we would start to see because the uh, courts in Israel have to just look over some things to make sure there's Scream. no, yeah. Well, because Israel said they're not going to release any Palestinian prisoners that are have been convicted of killing Israelis. No, and you know and why? So, you know who the current head of Hamas is? A guy that they released from prison in order to get one of their soldiers back. And I'm not condemning what they did. They no. did what they felt at the time right. was the right thing to do. Exactly. Not going to Monday morning quarterback that, but this is the problem. Mm-hmm. You could be releasing someone that could come back to haunt you. They want to try to prevent that by being more selective. Yeah, and when that start, we started talking about this, I was, who are the Palestinian prisoners that we've heard nothing about? Well, when you do a little bit of reading, there's been a lot of unrest in the West Bank, and they've been arresting a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so they released 300, there's a list of 300 people. And as Guy said, women and people under the age of 18, but there are more people in the prisons than the 300 yeah. and the 150. But is Abigail coming home? That's, I mean, that's supposedly the first hope, I've heard of this. Hope. And I thought of both of you because we've been sitting here. Yes. Yeah. Cause you, know, you could close your eyes and picture her little face. face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that Apparently head. two American women and Abigail, who's also American should be in the list of 50. Now, what about Hirsch uh, Goldberg? You know, his mother spoke so eloquently on the Washington Mall. And this is, you know, this man lost his arm in the attack. Mm -hmm. So we don't even know if he's still alive. I fear that some of these hostage families are also going to be getting bad news today about who 
is not available for lease because they are not lo- any right. longer with us. Well, uh, I also heard that hearing the identification of who Hamas has was something big for Israel to learn because mm-hmm. they had no proof of life. And That's right. But they, I guess, released them a list of who they have. Meantime, uh, the prime minister has been very clear. This is only temporary. They're still yeah. going to go after They still want to eradicate Hamas. Right. He said we're still at war. Yeah. You can't have the, the, the folks that live within close proximity to Gaza, the people that were in their kibbutzes, they thought safe on October 7th, who have now had to flee their homes. They can't go back as long as Hamas remains that's a threat. So that's why it has to be eradicated. They will resume hostilities. Here's the thing, though. And we'll ask Mike Rogers about this. We're going to have him on a little bit later on. This will make it much harder for Israel. Israel says it will resume the attacks, mm-hmm. but the condemnation of it will be much harsher now that we've had this pause. The pressure will ratchet up. Rashida Tlaib already tweeting out, this is fine, but we need a full ceasefire. Well, until Hamas is eradicated, you're not going to get that ceasefire, nor right. should you expect it from those that were rooted from their homes and murdered. So the pause is really going to hype up folks saying, we, if we did the pause, we can do the ceasefire too. Right. And you've seen what Bernie Sanders is oh, saying yes. in, the, in the halls of uh, Congress. Uh, and Democrats are pushing back on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's definitely a division within the Democrats of uh, some people saying, let's have a full ceasefire. Others are saying, absolutely not. Um, but other, there are more moderate Democrats who are saying, well, let's give aid to Israel, but let's have conditions. Yeah. On that money. And that's that's what Sanders is saying. And, of course, there are those like Chuck Schumer that are saying, no, we will not put conditions on people that are struggling for their uh, e- existence. Um, some interesting news coming out of MSU, Jamie. Yes. Um, I emailed you guys yesterday about this. There's not much detail to it, but there is a report from ESPN that Michigan State's athletic director, Alan Haller, wanted to fire Mel Tucker before the season even started. And uh, he was rebuffed in those ideas. It's Dan Murphy from ESPN saying Haller, quote, said he wanted to separate Tucker from the football team months before the 2023 season began. But the school's administration prevented him from doing so Uh, in his initial termination letter on September 18th that the coaches admissions that he flirted. And we know all the details Mm -hmm. then. Haller was aware of Tucker's admissions months before taking any disciplinary actions against him. So. Haller knew and wanted to get rid of him. Who prevented him from doing so? And they all said they found out through the USA Today article, but it seems like there was some information prior to that. But this was still regarding Brenda Tracy. It wasn't other external or extraneous things around that. Correct. Okay. Correct. And that is all that's coming out of this report. There's no um, reaction from Michigan State, et cetera. Two big pieces of automotive news. Here. Yeah, uh, Nissan Motor giving uh, its 9,000 U.S. factory workers a 10% raise in January and eliminating a tiered pay structure, becoming the latest non-union auto manufacturer to boost wages following the UAW winning record contracts from the Detroit automakers. Also, four motor companies scaling back plans for a $3.5 billion battery plant in Marshall, Michigan, as consumers shift to electric vehicles more slowly than expected. Labor costs rise and a company moves uh, to cut costs. This is a big problem. It is. You know, we've got the Biden administration trying to force feed EVs down the throats of consumers. They're saying no. And here's what has been nagging at me for the better part of five years now. Uh, you're trying to answer a question that nobody asks, as my good friend Dan House said. Nobody mm-hmm. was clamoring for EVs except for 
some early adopters who were concerned about the climate. Yeah. And they've gotten so far ahead of the consumer now. They've almost built a trap door under themselves by investing billions that they're not going to receive, see return on. That's right. Or it's going to be delayed. So we've seen them, uh, we've seen them postpone some stuff in, at Lake Orion for General Motors. We've seen this scaled back. Interesting, the political part of this. Republicans want to hang this as a failure on Gretchen Whitmer, that Ford has had to react to a market that has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt Hall, the, the House Minority Leader, says if the original proposal misrepresented Ford's plan, he's insinuating that Ford acted in bad faith and gave them inflated numbers to get more incentive money. money. Yeah. But both Gretchen Whitmer, the legislative leaders in the House and the Senate have all said, and MEDC, we need to right-size this. And yes, we're going to be scaling back that those incentives because it's not going to deliver the jobs or the capacity that we thought it was. It's going to be a 42% decline in uh, in production. Yep. Then it should be a 42% decline in incentives. And not only the Marshall, Michigan uh, plant that was, you know, postponed, it's now back up, uh, going to be back up again. But the company also postponed construction of another electric vehicle uh, plant in Kentucky. And the big one in Kentucky yeah. that we lost and we were embarrassed that we lost it, which led to this this epidemic of, of, of sore funding and, and throwing millions at it, all of which we you could argue we needed to do if we want to compete for these plants of the future. We had said that construction had not stopped. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're now confirming that in the free press and the news. What we had learned, the site prep was still going, uh, was on. Still going mm-hmm. on. And so they will resume it. But let me tell it's you, that is a huge caution light about this transition. From 2,500 jobs to 1,700 jobs. Yeah, that's and, – and the, the – it could be more if this demand doesn't materialize. When we come back, what will the legislative priorities be in the new legislative year in January when it will be a 54-54 split in the House? We will speak to the Speaker of the Michigan House, Joe Tate, next on JR Morning. The legislative year has closed. They have uh, closed up shop a little bit early uh, to accommodate a presidential primary schedule. Uh, But it was a year where a lot got done. But there is still more left on the table and the agenda, and it will be a little bit more difficult, especially in the Michigan House, where it will be an even 54-54 split because two state reps have become mayors in their respective towns, and uh, we may not get a special election for that till long about May. Uh, That makes for a bit of a dicier uh, road to travel for our next guest, the Speaker of the Michigan House, Joe Tate, state representative of the 10th District, joining us live this morning. Speaker, good morning. Guy, good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, We were just discussing, apparently, the Detroit City Council is going to have a public hearing and take up the mayor's land value tax plan. I know that was something that was left on the table. How high up the list of priorities is that for the resumption of the legislative year in January? It's something that we, you know, definitely want to be able to work on. That's certainly a priority. How are we focused on uh, reducing costs and um, and reducing uh, the tax burden, uh, in particular with the land value tax on Detroit homeowners? Uh, how are we helping to encourage development? Because that's something that's needed uh, in the city. So it's something that we're definitely going to be coming back and, and taking uh, another look at it to see if we can get it out. Uh, Speaker, uh, also, I think one of your priorities, you said, was going to be auto insurance and, and, you know, how the Senate approved higher insurance reimbursements to care for people that were seriously hurt in car crashes. 
Um, how are we going to address that, and will that be one of your top priorities as well? That's that's going to be on the agenda as well. So we've been having in the House uh, a process uh, in terms of what our insurance chair, uh, Representative Brenda Carter, has been working on uh, throughout uh, the summer and the fall um, on how are we focused around that. So it's good that we have, um, you know, the Senate package and, and what they sent over. Uh, but we, once we get back next year, uh, that, that will be a focus of effort as well, too, because, you know, we know that, um, you know, obviously we had the legislation in 2019, uh, and we've had some time now just to see, you know, the, the impacts of, of uh, the auto uh, reform legislation. So we'll come back next year and, and, and we're going to be uh, focused on that uh, as, as well too, because we know that, um, you know, auto insurance rates, uh, coverage, we want to make sure that, you know, all Michiganders have access to, to affordable auto insurance rates and also the coverage that comes with it. Speaker, we have been talking all morning about a bill that Gretchen Whitmer signed yesterday blocking domestic violence offenders from owning or possessing a firearm for eight years. Obviously something a lot of people can get behind, but some saying it's a, an overreach and too broad of definitions in multiple ways. What would you say to that? I think when we came in this year, um, you know, focus of effort has been around gun violence prevention because for over the past decade, uh, you know, when, when I served in the minority and my time in the legislature before this year, there were no, there weren't even any hearings around gun violence prevention. So earlier this year, we saw um, efforts to get universal background checks, safe storage, as well as uh, red flag legislation to the governor's desk, and we did that. Uh, this is a continuation of that. And we know that when you look at uh, domestic violence incidents, uh, we know that there is a high propensity around gun violence in, in that space. Um, I don't feel that it is an overreach. Um, in fact, uh, the opposite, because when we look at this, I think the last thing that I want to see and my colleagues want to see is talking to a family member or a parent uh, asking us why we haven't been able to um, work on issues around gun violence prevention. Uh, so I don't view it as an overreach. Actually, I view it as uh, something to, to continue to build safe and strong communities across the state. Well, if not an overreach, maybe maybe a, a, a better uh, characterization would be s some flaws in in the legislation. I mean, if, if you uh, put a, a false statement on a veteran's benefit application, some gambling offenses, disorderly conduct at a funeral, there's a lot of, of uh, misdemeanors and low-grade felonies here that could get, trigger loss of a weapon as well. That may not be overreach, but it could be a violation that won't stand up uh, under judicial scrutiny. Is there maybe some cleanup that needs to be done in these bills in the new legislative year? Uh, that's something that we can, we'll, we'll certainly always um, take a look at and, and are open to it. I think um, when we look at this legislation, however, um, when you look at the incidents that have taken place, not only in you know the district that I represent, or uh, other areas, when you look at the history of gun violence, uh, 
uh, across this state and obviously more recently with what we've seen in Oxford, what we've seen at Michigan State. Um, I think the larger issue is us actually governing mm-hmm. to be able to move legislation that, that reduces that. Now, there, is, there isn't any policy, public policy that's going to be perfect. Obviously, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll come and, uh, you know, take – we can always take a look at that. Um, but I think the bigger picture for us is actually being able to enact the legislation that will, that will uh, curb uh, gun violence reduction, not, not obviously wipe it all out, but be able to have the tools to, to lower uh, gun violence across the state. Speaker Tate, we got about a minute left. Uh, you're going to come back with a 54-54 split. You got to fill those seats uh, left vacant by Representatives uh, Lori Stone and Kevin Coleman. Will you be able to work bipartisanly? Uh, yes, I'm optimistic that, that we will. And, and we have uh, throughout the year. Um, there have been certain issues that, that we haven't been able to get to get that bipartisanship. But for the most part, when you look at legislation moving out of the House, uh, it is in a bipartisan fashion. Um, but, you know, for us, uh, for me, we still what takes precedent is putting people first at the end of the day, House Democrats. You know, we're still setting the agenda. We still want to move forward and figure out ways of how to lower costs, how to put money back in people's pockets, how to create safe and strong communities and the like. But I, I, I hope that, yes, I, I am optimistic that we can work in a bipartisan fashion. We just got a little bit more time because I have to ask you, you went to Michigan State undergrad, Michigan grad school. So how do you watch the game on Saturday? <laughs> that might be the- I didn't know that question was coming up. I know. Uh, that, that's, uh, <laughs> I asked a tough question. I am a, <laughs> I am a, 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 I did my undergrad at Michigan State. I played uh, football there, so I, I cheer for my Spartans. Uh, I hope none of my uh, constituents that are Michigan fans will hold that against me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah. I know, you, I know you're still green at heart, and I know you're also pulling for our lines. You had a couple of years there in the NFL, and uh, I, hopefully we'll get our secondary uh, problems fixed because this is a great-looking team, Speaker. Oh, it is. It, it is. Really looking, looking forward uh, to uh, this Thursday and uh... – Happy Thanksgiving Eve. If you're going to be hitting the road in the next couple of hours, right now checking the radar for the state of Michigan, the entire mitten is for the most part precipitation-free. A couple of showers up near the Grand Traverse Bay. But other than that, things looking good. Checked uh, DTW. It appears that all departures are on time. No delays, no cancellations. If that changes, we'll let you know about it here on JR Morning. The breaking news of the morning, as you heard from Fox News, Israel and Hamas agreed to assist fire uh, for the release of hostages. This is a temporary four-day ceasefire. It should begin sometime tomorrow. 150 Palestinians to be released, 50 hostages, including, we think, three Americans. Let's learn more about it and what this portends, perhaps, for the future. Uh, Mike Rogers, former U.S. Intelligence Committee uh, chairman in the House, also now a Republican Senate candidate, uh, joining us live this morning. Mike, good morning. Guy, it is uh, good to hear your voice. Uh, I hope you're getting ready for a great Thanksgiving to you and yours. Same with Lloyd and Amy. The, 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 the bird is thought and all things are good. Uh, 
and, and this that's this is this is a nice beginning to our Thanksgiving holiday and something that we will give thanks for today and tomorrow. How much of this is is a, a diplomatic breakthrough, and and does it bring greater potential in the future? Uh, anytime you're you're freeing hostages, uh, you know that were ripped out of their beds in the in the early morning hours and dragged across the border. It's a good day. So those hostages that are going to get freed will get medical attention. They'll get everything they need, and and hopefully the long psychological journey for their recovery, uh, which won't be easy. This is this is a good sign. It's a good day. It tells me that Hamas is under uh, intense pressure inside of Gaza, and they know it. Uh, and the Israelis are probably in a position where they believe this will allow them not to kill more soldiers. So remember all the time for the ceasefire and all of that was, well, how many Israeli soldiers will die during the ceasefire, right? And so that's what I think all of these calculations tell me, that there is progress around the corner. However, if you listen to both of their statements, uh, they say this thing's not done. We're not over. Both of them, the Israelis and the and the, the Hamas terrorists are saying the same thing. Yeah, my so God. I'm yeah, sorry. Go I was going to ask. You know, the, will this pause also allow Hamas to kind of regroup? And yeah, reboot? absolutely. And and that is what is the 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 biggest concern I think for the Israelis is that they'll you know they're going to be moving weapons uh, you know caches and they'll be making sure they're resupplied. Their soldiers will will, will finally have a day's rest. Uh, all of those things, you know, are, we know will happen. I'm going to guess that the Israelis will use this for intelligence collection purposes, try to figure out where, where they're going, what they're doing, where they're moving things. It won't be easy, and it won't be uh, you know, 100% accurate. But there will be both sides will be preparing for what uh, the day the truth ends. Uh, Mike, what about the Palestinian prisoners, and how will Israel choose who to let go? I mean, there's a reason they picked them up in the first place. Uh, yeah, so I think that they will probably, you know, the women were that were imprisoned in in, in jail committed crimes, and uh, and so they were placed in jail. So they'll they'll probably go through the list of the ones that they think least likely will join the fight, and so that's I think how Israel will make that decision. Mike, this is a uh, it's a good day. It will be a four day pause. But we also know that once you have a cessation of hostilities, won't it also ratchet up pressure to make this ceasefire permanent? We know that Rashida Tlaib has already uh, tweeted out that that's her expectation now. Um, how much, how difficult will it be on on Israel, both from a military but also a public relations standpoint, once hostilities resume? I mean, I think that Israel has come to the conclusion they're not likely to win the public relations. They're going to try. They're going to try to provide facts. I mean, in the face of facts of tunnels under hospitals and schools and mosques, uh, people just refuse to believe that the terrorists would do that. And so I think they've, they're in a position to understand, listen, I get that, but we have to continue to push to dismantle their ability to do what they did. And so I, I, I do believe that you could get after four days – Hamas saying, hey, we'll release another uh, you know, number of, of prisoners over a number of days to try to get as much, buy as much time as they can. And I think that's where Israel will have to make the decision is getting those hostages back. Uh, and I'm going to guess that they're at a place on the ground where they feel confident that they can, they can wait a little bit. 
to make sure that the, these hostages get out free. Uh, and remember that they're, this is an intelligence bonanza for them. They're going to understand the tunnel network a little bit better. They'll understand tunnels and other things from the hostages. So there's a lot that's going to happen in between them getting them out and then the, the, the continuing on. What Israel has said, and I believe them, they will not and cannot allow Hamas to exist in the way that it did prior to October 7th. And so that's not done yet, I believe. Mike, uh, you know, while there will be a pause uh, between this war between the Israelis and, and Hamas, uh, we still have to be vigilant, meaning the U.S., um, as those proxies, those Iranian proxies still try to, um, you know, come after our U.S. military. So we still must stay vigilant. Absolutely. So, um, you know, almost, uh, I think the number is now over 70-some attacks onto U.S. Uh, forces through, you know, kamikaze drones and, and uh, rocket fire and other things uh, is something we're going to have to watch out for. And I wouldn't wouldn't surprise me. Remember, Iran is absolutely up to no good. Uh, so when the ceasefire happens, wouldn't surprise me to see the, the Hezbollah or another Iranian proxy uh, engage in something in the region just to keep uh, Israel and the U.S. destabilized a little bit. Uh, Mike, some in Congress, of course, calling for a full ceasefire, which isn't going to happen. But others are saying, let's put conditions on some of this money that we're going to give to Israel. What are your thoughts on that and why or why not? Well, I wouldn't change anything going into uh, what our agreement with, with, uh, was with Israel. I mean, they have come under a terrorist attack. Uh, I wouldn't give the terrorists one inch on this. I, I don't know why we would do that. You, you don't reward the sheer brutality that they committed against civilians on October 7th, purposely and deliberately and targeted. I wouldn't do it. Uh, I would be start to put uh, uh, sanctions back onto the Iranians uh, when they, they took off the, the – or lack they didn't enforce the sanctions on oil – it gave them billions of dollars in cash. When it, uh, in 2018, the Trump administration put on really tough sanctions on export of oil from Iran. That hurt their cat, their money position, which would, wouldn't allow them to support these proxies. Biden administration took that off, and when they did, it just got this flood of cash. And guess what's happened since? Mm-hmm. You have Hamas, you have Hezbollah, you have the Houthis in Yemen, all getting this new fresh round of cash and weaponry, all of that coming through Iran. So if there's going to be any talk about curtailing anything, I would put the sanctions back on uh, the Iranians so that they don't have all of this cash to spend on killing innocent people around the region and trying to destabilize the region. No question. I I do have to ask you, though, on on this morning, the the Biden administration hasn't had many foreign policy wins, but they did help to broker this deal between Qatar and Egypt acting as intermediaries. Is is this one of those big diplomatic wins for the administration that maybe they should get some credit for? Listen, anytime you're negotiating to get hostages out, that's a good day. I I do believe you have to look in totality of how this happened, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And there are all of these pieces, and every one of these pieces had a consequence that led up to this day, making sure that we could not, we had to be energy uh, dependent on the Middle East by making sure we couldn't produce what we needed here in America, step one. Right. And because we did that, we had to rely on more oil in the market. So they took the sanctions off of Iran. Step two, Uh, the fact that we took away the ability for the Saudis to contain the Houthis, which is an Iranian backed 
uh, group and the, the Biden mm-hmm. administration has done all of these steps, right? All of these steps now have consequences. All of these things, you can draw a bright line to October 7th. And so, yes, I'm glad that they, uh, the, the Qataris have been pushing this for, for months. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, of the, some of the Hamas leadership has been in Qatar in pretty nice digs, I understand. Uh, and so I do think, listen, if you're negotiating for this, that's great. We should not do is put pressure on uh, Israel to do something that's not in the interest of dismantling Hamas. Uh, that's what I worry about. You know, we all want to celebrate this, and we should, and hostages coming home is a great day, and that's something to be thankful for. But there is much work to be done to dismantle this terrorist organization. And what we don't want to have done, given all those consequences I just outlined, right. is add another consequence for more damage and, and uh, violence in the future. No question about it. Mike Rogers, thanks so much. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving, my friend. I'm going to do that. Enjoy your families all. We will very much. Thank you, Mike. Uh, one thing, the editorial board, editorial in the Wall Street Journal this morning, talks about the moral gulf between Hamas and Israel. And it says this, Hamas kidnapped Israeli children as young as nine months to use as hostages and spring its jihadists who have been arrested or convicted in a fair trial for their crimes. Israel takes military risks to save its citizens. Hamas risks Palestinian civilians to save itself. Interesting take. 645. U.S. new vehicle retail registrations have been up for seven months in a row when compared to the same month a year ago, according to S&P Global Mobility registration data. This follows a 19-month period in which they were down almost every month. In the current seven-month string of gains, we saw double-digit improvements in May through July, 7% in August, and 9.9% in September. In the mainstream or mass market, Chevrolet and Kia both have had year-over-year gains for 14 months in a row, longer than any other mass market brand. Chevrolet's streak has been driven by 10 months in a row of gains for the Trailblazer and Traverse crossovers, and five months for the recently redesigned tracks. Kia's streak has been led by a 12-month gain for the Telluride and 10 months for the Carnival midsize van. In the luxury market, Tesla is the clear leader with year-over-year increases in all 21 months reviewed for this analysis. Tesla has been propelled by the Model Y compact crossover, which has been up every month in this time period, including gains of over 50% in each of the eight most recent months. I'm Tom Libby with this week's Automotive Minute from S&P Global Mobility, formerly IHS Market. And this week's S&P Global Mobility Minute with Tom Libby is brought to you by Dana. Dana, people finding a better way. It is November 22nd, 2023. And for those of us of a certain age that remember this day 60 years ago, it is still unsettling, still chilling, and maybe still doubts around what was behind the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. A young president, two young children, beautiful first lady whose life was snuffed out with three shots in Dealey Plaza in Dallas. And uh, on this 60th anniversary, and by the way, the limo that he was riding in currently resides at Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn. Uh, We wanted to welcome in uh, Richard Jewell. He is an attorney, uh, former president of Grove City College, who has uh, become a nationally recognized speaker on the JFK assassination to give us some perspective. He's also a University of Michigan alum. Go Blue, Richard Jewell. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me and uh, look forward to our discussion. 
2,000 books have been written about this assassination. Looking back, would there have been so much doubt had the autopsy not been so badly performed? Probably not. That would have been more helpful. It's clear, and Dr. Wecht here in Pittsburgh, uh, still alive and, and doing fairly well, has said quite a bit about that. The autopsy... Um, was uh, you know two to three hours. There was a lot of time spent at the end, you know, preparing the body uh, to move it back to the White House. Uh, <clears throat> but the conclusion was uh, this was not hard. That it was uh, the fatal headshot wound that had caused the death. But there are you know there are still questions uh, from from the autopsy, and, and indeed there are there are questions. There are still some open things, and some of which probably will never be answered. Um. Why do you think people still, you know, read all the books, care so much 60 years later? Is it this um, conspiracy stuff or is it this sort of what might have been if he wasn't killed? What do you think? Well, it's uh, that's part of it. Uh, and that's the latter part is what might have been is the ultimate speculation on U.S. foreign policy, Vietnam uh, and, and matters like that. But, uh, you know, we are, especially in the last 10 or 15 years, we are very prone to uh, taking conspiracies uh, to heart and, uh, you know, thinking about them and not trusting uh, the authoritative uh, folks from the FBI and places like that. And and that's actually sort of uh, ginned it up a little more. Only time passage, which is now so long, has kind of dampened it down, too. So it's only about every 10 years now, uh, at the 50th and the 60th that we uh, get to have these kinds of uh, discussions. You know, Richard, and, and, and doing a little research about this, I'm looking at a, a, a Gallup poll. Gallup, you know, they surveyed a lot of Americans right after the, the death of uh, JFK. And like right after the murder in 63, you had 52% majority believe there was some group or element other than the gunman involved. 29% thought he acted on his own. 19 were unsure. But then from the mid-70s to the early 2000s, uh, Americans' belief in that conspiracy ranged from seventy-four percent to eighty-one percent. Right. Well, exactly what I what I just uh, what I just said. We're obviously less less trusting of conclusions, so when they come in an authoritative way, and, uh, and and folks have the ability to express their opinions in social media, all of that is much different from what it was uh, sixty uh, sixty years ago. The view that I've had over the years is uh, it's probably not the majority view, maybe necessarily today, is that the Warren Commission generally got it correct that there were three shots. 88% of uh, the ear witness testimony taken that day indicated uh, three shots, uh, that those three shots were fired by Oswald with the gun that he had bought, that he owned. There were three cases found uh, from the bullets on the sixth floor, and there were witnesses directly under him on the fifth floor that heard the shots and heard the uh, cases uh, drop. Uh, Oswald obviously went took flight after that, uh, left the only person in the building that did leave and was unaccounted for, uh, shot Officer Tippett when he uh, saw him walking, and he'd had a description of Oswald that had been broadcasted 15 minutes after the shots were fired based on uh, eyewitness testimony of a gentleman named Howard Brennan who had looked up at the window and done a pretty good job of describing Oswald. 
when confronted, of course, Oswald shot uh, shot Tippett. So he was obviously uh, uh, in flight. The question of uh, conspiracy, if there were three shots, there was one shooter, that's one person, uh, was Oswald radicalized? And that's a term we we recognize more today in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, well, since 9-11, that concept uh, that we didn't know about before. And there were parts of his uh, short life that uh, even the most intense investigation couldn't really tell what he was doing in Mexico for those five days uh, in late September, early October of 63, exactly what he was doing. He was at the Soviet embassy. He was trying to get a visa to go to Cuba. Uh, he was uh, he was a communist uh, a follower, called himself a Marxist. And he had done that since uh, he was he was in high school. Uh, Oswald, by any account, uh, was and it was sad. It's a sad story. He was a yeah. a misfit, had a hard time growing up. Was in numerous schools, uh, and so he he was. And I think he came to communism fairly much on his own. But uh, whether folks uh, in that last few weeks suggested things to him, that's something we'll we'll never know. So that, I, I, I Professor Jewell, I, I've I've read probably ten of these books over the past sixty years myself. Case mm-hmm. Closed by Gerald Posner may have been one of the best. But I've got to ask you, and we only have sixty yeah. minutes, sixty seconds left here. Right? Are you a single gunman believer, or do you believe in the grassy knoll and, and a second gunman? Well, in the grassy you know, let me speak to that directly. Uh, if you get down, and as I did, this is probably the only original thing I've done besides reading a lot of the experts and, and making the conclusions, coming conclusions. If you stand on the abutment that Zabruder stood on, it's hard to get up there. It's about close to five feet. Yep. He and his secretary standing there. You are now eight to nine feet off the ground. You are looking directly behind the fence at the grassy knoll within 15 feet of where the assertions were that the gunman was. And while Zapruder kept his eye carefully on what was going on as Mr. Kennedy came around that corner and down to that fateful rendezvous, nevertheless, his uh, assistant or secretary, uh, Ms. Sitzman, was holding on to him. She could not have missed, and I mean this, could not have missed with her own eyes seeing somebody fire 15 to 20 feet away from her and she's looking right down at it. And, and your eyes and would have been drawn to it because you would have heard yeah. it coming from that location. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Um, well, it, it, it's uh, Posner's book is called Case Closed. I think that's uh, probably wishful thinking. I don't think it ever will be in the minds of many Americans. Uh, Richard Jewell, thank you for your scholarship on this and your time. So far, everything out of Metro Airport is on schedule and on time. Not one delay, not one cancellation, and I will keep checking. And if that changes, we'll let you know about it. But right now, everything is in the green for Metro. Our roads are dry throughout the mitten uh, and should stay that way for most of the day. So if you are traveling, heaven knows we've seen worse days to travel. Yes, we have. Sure, this is great. This is uh, distinctly un-Michigan for for the the Thanksgiving uh, travel. Uh, we do uh, awake with uh, breaking news and good breaking news this morning as 50 hostages, including likely three American hostages, uh, will be released most likely tomorrow as a four day cessation of hostilities begins in the Gaza region. And uh, this was brokered by the United States, along with help from Egypt and Qatar. It is a diplomatic victory for the Biden administration. But make no mistake, this is a just a temporary 
uh, cessation of hostilities, they will resume as Israel must to root out Hamas. But for the families, Jamie, that have been waiting for word of their loved ones, especially some American families, this is joyous news. Yeah, we've talked about little three-year-old Abigail, an American whose parents were killed, and just the horrible story about that. She could be part of this guy, and that little three-year-old could be back at least with some of her family soon. Right. It's it's mostly children, mostly women. Um, And then on the Palestinian side, most of these are going to be women and young men under the age of 18. Yeah, they're going to release 150 Palestinian prisoners held in Israel. And they said that all the people on the list are women or people under the age of 18. Now, there are certainly more people in prison than the 150, and there are certainly more hostages than the 50 coming out of the Hamas uh, area, but this is a start. I think it shows that at least they're willing to negotiate. And mm-hmm. as Mike Rogers said just a little bit ago, he said maybe it proves that the pressure on Hamas from Israeli forces is working too. And Israel said they're not going to release any Palestinian prisoners who have been convicted of killing Israelis. And, you know, they, they have to pick and choose really because you don't want a person who they release to go back and join the fight with Hamas as we have had that already. Yeah. In the past. Uh, Rashida Tlaib tweeted out around nine o'clock last night, shortly after. um, And she said this, when the short term agreement expires, the bombing of innocent civilians will continue. We need a permanent ceasefire that saves lives, brings all the hostages and those arbitrarily detained home and puts an end to this horrific violence. Well, you're not putting an end to the horrific violence if you allow Hamas to to stay intact. Uh, But this will be understand. This is going to build additional pressure on Israel, and and they know that. And by the way, Hamas can earn another day of a truce or a ceasefire by releasing 10 more hostages. So we could see them try to extend this day by day, because I think they believe every day that you have a ceasefire of sorts is a day that they hope they can get a ceasefire permanently. I don't Mm -hmm. think Israel is going to buy that, but nor should they. No. Meantime, there is growing, along with Rashida Tlaib, there are others on the left Yeah, that, uh, that, that want to dial back our support for Israel. Yeah, Senator Bernie Sanders uh, has called for the USA to Israel to be conditioned on a change in the military and political positions of its government. Sanders said in the statement, while Israel has the right to go after Hamas, Netanyahu's right-wing extremist government does not have the right to wage almost total warfare against the Palestinian people. Sanders also said continued aid should be contingent on a commitment to peace talks for a two-state solution and the end of the Israeli blockade or occupation of Gaza. Under Sanders' proposal, the U.S. would withhold further aid unless there is a fundamental change in their military and political positions. Democrats in the House and Senate are discussing how to create conditions for future military aid to Israel. But that's some... Democrats. Some we should Democrats. point out that there is a, a, a mini civil war going on now within the Democratic Party about that very yes, issue, and he faced some severe backlash backlash from his own leadership, uh, Chuck Schumer, and 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 others. Mm-hmm. Meantime, especially if you're going to be traveling with your dog over the Thanksgiving holiday, there's something you need to be aware of because there's a virus out there that could be harmful. Yeah, vets are warning pet owners about an infectious respiratory disease that was first detected among dogs a few months ago. They've seen this in five states so far. Veterinarians describe the illness as a respiratory disease that can cause coughing, sneezing, and lethargy. Lloyd pointed out it's kind of like COVID COVID symptoms, but they're certainly not saying that. 
that's what this is. But this can sometimes lead to pneumonia and does not respond to antibiotics. Uh, they don't fully under understand the disease yet or the cause behind it. But they're saying that people should be vigilant uh, when it comes to keeping an eye on your dog. Yeah, this is Dr. Brad Davis who talked with Marie Osborne on JR Afternoon. I don't want people to be scared. This is not something to be frightened of. It's something to be aware of. It's something to take precautions. You know, it's, I always say live your life, but don't necessarily uh, just live it smarter. And it shouldn't be too big an issue. But, yeah, right now we think that it's a virus, but we don't know exactly what kind of virus. We don't know exactly uh, where it came from. We don't know exactly how it spreads. So right now they're just at the early stages. And, and the problem is right now we haven't had a confirmed case here in Michigan, no. and that's a good thing. But he worries that his people maybe take their dog to grandma's house because they don't want to put it in a kennel because of this threat. Mm-hmm. Well, then you're going to if you take it to a dog park there, you could be exposing your dog and you could bring it back to Michigan. So he's asking folks, you know, uh, be responsible yeah. when, if, if you're traveling with your dog. It's spread uh, through close contact and breathing the same air of an infected animal. And that's from dog to dog. It does not go from dog to human. So don't worry about that. Yeah. How many people are putting a mask on their dog now? <laughs> Please, oh, God. God. Oh, my goodness. It'll be a whole thing. <laughs> oh, Time for WJR's Business Beat. Here's Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of Startup Nation, to spotlight the entrepreneurial tech and startup community on WJR. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Guy. What's hot in marketing these days? Well, one strategy that seems to be working really well is that of influencer marketing, in particular for B2B businesses. According to a 2023 B2B Influencer Marketing Report, that study by Top Rank Marketing conducted by Ascend2 of the professionals surveyed in this study, 94% say that influencer marketing is a highly effective strategy, and its use is growing. 85% now include it in their marketing mix, that versus 34% in 2020. Moreover, 40% describe influencer marketing as adding the most success to their overall marketing program, second only to social media. What are the direct benefits of a working influencer marketing program? 61% say it's increased sales revenue. 58% say it's improved brand reputation. And 47% say it's improved overall customer satisfaction and retention. So why does influencer marketing work so well? Most people say it's because the audience sees these influencers as being authentic and trustworthy. Beyond that, they see them as having subject matter expertise that's relevant to their interest in making a purchase, and they possess subject matter expertise of relevancy as well. So if you want or need to shake it up a bit with your marketing program, try adding influencer marketing to your marketing mix. I'm Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of StartupNation.com, and that's today's business beat on the great voice of the Great Lakes, WJR. We would like you to send you to see the Trans-Siberian Orchestra for its Ghosts of Christmas Eve concert at any one of the concert stops along its tour. And to register to win, you need the national keyword. And it is, for this hour, the word concert. Text concert to 95819. That's 95819. Text concert to that number, and you will be registered to win this great trip. Round trip airfare, three-night hotel stay, $1,000 uh, for your holiday shopping with a gift card that we'll throw in just for good measure. Uh, text that word now and register to win, and good luck. We rely on the Michigan Public Service Commission to be the voice of the consumer, to be a watchdog, to regulate the public utilities that we have here in the state of Michigan. 
But in the wake of an investigation by the Detroit Free Press, there are some really nagging questions about whom they're working for. We welcome in Paul Egan, the Lansing Bureau Chief for the Detroit Free Press, who led this investigation. Paul, good morning. Good morning, Guy. Give us some uh, instances of what you uncovered in this investigation that it has raised these doubts about whether or not the utilities and the MPSC are just too cozy. Sure. Well, first, there's a longtime revolving door between the commission and the industry. So um, we found that going back to the Engler administration, um, 79% of the commissioners went on to you know, work in the industry after they left the commission. Um, there's also a lot of financial ties. The, the um, utility trade groups like the Edison Electric Institute sponsor getaway conferences that uh, commissioners go to and uh, you know um, they um, these happen on on a regular basis there's a there's an annual conference of a regional utility group that actually makes so much money from sponsorships that they they use the surplus to have a, a commissioners only conference down in uh, San Antonio Texas usually um, where where that's all paid for the, for the commissioners and that that surplus was raised from uh sponsorships from from groups that uh you know DTE and consumers belong to another thing i found guy was just the amazing amount of of secrecy uh, you know back in the the public service commission used to have to conduct all its business in in public but back in 1988 they got a an exemption to the open meetings act it was sold as a kind of a limited exemption to help them deliberate uh, rate cases where they act as a sort of quasi-judicial body. But uh, the chairman confirmed to me that um, that they interpret that exemption to apply to all their business. And and basically, when they come out in public, they they have their votes, which they've already they've already decided uh, what they're going to do. And they make, you know, any statements about it that they want to. But all those deliberations are in secret, which kind of explains why if you go back to 2010, there's never been an, an order voted down. And uh, the last no vote that any commissioner cast was uh, eight years ago. You know, I'm looking at your at your report and it talks about the uh, 19 commissioners who served uh, on the Public Service Commission when they uh, left in 1990, at least 15 of them work in jobs related to, you know, fields uh, that are regulated uh, in energy and electricity, those kind of things. You had a, a, a guy who became a staff attorney for consumers and um, it, it's 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 a lot of a lot of mixing there. And it's 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 kind of close. Absolutely. And uh, and sometimes it works the other way, too. Uh, you know, Governor Snyder actually appointed a former consumers executive to the commission. So, you know, sometimes, you know, not only do they go to work in the industry, but sometimes they've also come for, from it. And and that's where, you know, um, economists can call this phenomenon regulatory capture. And it's kind of where, you know, the independence of these commissioners can gradually be eroded. And, you know, it doesn't mean that the utilities get everything they want, but it, it may mean that they get higher rate increases than they otherwise would. Or when they, you know, when they screw up something like a response to a storm, 
uh, they may not get uh, held accountable as much as they as they should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul, so you say it lacks transparency in decision making. They get 80 percent of the funding from DTE and consumers. Um, so why should the regular person care who's listening to this, who you know has their regular home and wants service? Yeah, absolutely. So if um, if the if the regulators are too close to the industry, your rates are probably going to be higher than they should be because this body actually uh, DTE and consumers has to come to them to ask for a rate increase, and they ask. You know, they always ask for more than they get, but, um, you know, there's a lot of discretion in what, what, what expenses they allow and what they don't. So that's one way is your, your rates could be higher. The other reason is, you know, this commission, they opened investigations into poor storm response, like year after year. It's happened repeatedly where we've had these, these storms and people, you know, sometimes taken not only days, but in some cases weeks to get their electricity back on. But it's only in in the last year after, you know, another big failure, a lot of them around Metro Detroit, that they they finally have ordered a, a an independent audit of, of, of these utilities to try to find out what's really going on. So it's kind of like, you know, why was this allowed to slide so many times that, you know, it's great that they are uh, taking some further action now, but but again, if if they're not if they're not holding their feet to the fire, that can affect how long your electricity might be out if you have an outage. We should point out, Paul, that you went through 300 meeting minutes going back to 2010. You talked to chairs going back to the Engler administration. This was an exhaustive investigation. When you consulted with others and looked at how other states do it to make sure that this in important commission is truly independent. What kind of reforms did they suggest or did they? What should we be considering? Um, there's, you know, there's there's some variation for sure. In some places, for example, commissioners are elected rather than appointed. Here they're appointed by the governor. Um, you know, there's pros and cons to that. I'm not I'm not saying that that, that would necessarily um, um, help to fix things. You know, there's little things too, Guy, like um, this idea that that consumers and DTE pays almost the entire budget for yeah. the commission. Well, you know, it, it's not uncommon for for regulated entities to sort of pay the cost of, of regulation. Like, like you know, in a lot of cities, they'll sell taxi medallions, and that'll support the taxi commission. But, but you know, one interesting thing is in Illinois, for example, where they also have a tax on utilities, they they specify. However, the commissioner's salaries must be must be paid separately from the from the general funds. You mm-hmm. know, we don't. It's it's maybe it's an optics thing, but it, again, it kind of it kind of goes into this whole sort of incestuous um, relationship thing. When, yeah, when, that would certainly be a good start. Paul is to sever those ties. Great investigation. Thank you for your time. Lots of economic news to chew on this morning. Uh, the governor taking a victory lap over an independent group that rates state business climates. And when it comes to site selection, Site Selection Magazine saw Michigan leap eight spots. Uh, we're still out of the top ten. 
Uh, last year, we finished 20th, so we're a bit higher now. This year, we ranked 8th. That is a that is a big jump, uh, and she is taking uh, kind of a victory lap on that. The question is, where will we be next year once the right to work stuff kicks in and prevailing wage, and once our income tax is no longer as low as it is right now because the Democrats made it temporary, not permanent. Uh, we also saw some activity in the housing sector yesterday and another uh, t- the Tax Foundation talking about Michigan business climate as well. Who better to connect with than David Sowerby, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at Ancora Bloomfield Hills. David, good morning and happy Thanksgiving. Guy, good morning right back at you. Enjoy this week. We have been already. Um, look, we saw the housing report come, sales of existing homes uh, down 4% in October when compared with September. That's the lowest sales pace since August of 2010. What does that say about our economy? Is that a, a, a caution light? Well, it, it certainly is with, um, with with mortgage rates staying stubbornly high. There's been some relief, but housing has been slowing down. You've seen uh, spending at some of the big box retailers, most notably Lowe's, Lowe's uh, earnings report yesterday, Less spending on do-it-yourself for the uh, for you and I going into Lowe's and buying product, and and I'll quickly go back and say to the to the observation on Site Selection Magazine, the Tax Foundation. Uh, let's roll in there even just this past uh, week or so, the Cato Institute ranking Michigan number seven in the country on freedom among the fifty states. This is a bit of a trifecta for the, the state of Michigan. Tax Foundation, great report every every uh, fall on economic competitiveness for states. Michigan ranks uh, number, number 12. Cato, number seven. Site Selection Magazine, great improvement. That all stems from the last 10 to 12 years of Michigan uh, consistently getting its competitive, competitiveness better. But you're right. Can we stay there with some of the some of the more recent policies, maybe not being as competitive as they could be? We should also add in CNBC put us in the top 10 uh, for doing business as well. And they use a very complicated 86 metric formula for uh, this. Uh, David, I'm, I'm looking at the 10 criteria site selection magazine states matter most in their rankings and. You know, I'm thinking about Michigan and I'm looking at, you know, utilities, the cost and reliability. We've had issues with that and the transportation infrastructure uh, as well. Uh, and and how we jump so far from 20 to 8 with some of these uh, some of these criteria. Well, workforce skills and also right to work. Yeah, that's right. Uh, both of which get mentioned a lot up at Mackinac and at other <laughs> business conferences. They do. We're going to see how we fare given uh, right to work has changed. But if you take a step back and you do look at uh, where we do rank well still, personal income tax, flat and low, needs to stay low. Uh, Sales tax, competitive. Uh, Property tax is generally competitive. Unemployment insurance. On the Cato Institute, they looked at uh, cost of freedom, such as how fiscally responsible is your state on spending. And you can't help ignore that. Three very, you know, credible agencies, Cato Institute, great free market think tank, Tax Foundation does some of the best work I've seen out of any of the think tanks, Site Selection Magazine, that ranks up there as well. 
you know, we, we should enjoy it while it lasts, but absolutely, Guy and Lloyd, keep fighting and pushing that we have to stay competitive because other states are not standing still. They're finding ways to reduce their income tax, going to a flat income tax, trying to be more competitive. Michigan can't stand still because other states are not. Uh, David, I'm looking at your newsletter for Ancora, and you tie it to Thanksgiving and things to be thankful for. And you're saying that it's been three and a half years of investing since the pre-pandemic stock market peak in 2020. And you're there, you're saying there's resiliency there. There sure is. If you think about two bear markets in the, in the early days of the pandemic, stocks fell about 35 percent. Last year was not much better. The stock market fell roughly 20%. So we've had two down bear markets in three and a half years. Yet the U.S. stock market, in this case, I'm trying to just look at the averages. The average U.S. S&P 500 company compounded just under 8%. Uh, If you look at those really big cap names like NVIDIA, Microsoft, Apple, just to name a few, they've compounded better than 10% to the investor. That simply goes to two factors quickly. One, resiliency of U.S. business and I think households to fight through um, the tough economic environment, particularly out of the uh, the pandemic. And, and then second, we just simply know there was so much stimulus, both from the fiscal authorities and even more so from the Federal Reserve Board, that stimulus found its way into asset prices and, and into stock prices. David, as as you look at what happened in Marshall, where Ford announced yesterday that it is going to resume construction of that battery plant, but it's going to be reducing its productive capacity there by about 42%. How concerned are you that this is just one of several disappointments we may see as uh, consumers say no thank you to EVs, or at least they're going to delay that decision? And and what kind of a position does the put that big three in who have invested billions in this technology, which consumers may be reluctant to adopt? That's such a a critical question. If you think back, let's just say two years ago, when when the auto companies were giving their forecasts on on the demand for EV cars, that there was going to be stronger demand. They were going to meet it. We certainly know the federal government was – sometimes encouraging and just pushing them in that direction with tax incentives. And we're finding out consumers aren't quite as embracing of, uh, of EVs versus good old fashioned internal combustion engine. Even when we bribe them. Slowing down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> even when we, even you're absolutely right. It's going to be a slower move to EVs. And then out of that, when you think about the car companies, Ford and GM in particular is they're generating a, ample amount of cash flow. That's great. I haven't seen that in decades for the car companies. But then with that cash flow, they're plowing it into uh, the EV capital expenditures, maybe not so fast. And as a shareholder, sometimes you'd like them to say, well, how about increasing the dividend to the shareholder? That might be a good use of cash flow as in, as opposed to just you know what we've seen, and that goes to the uh, to, to the capex on EVs, or asking when do we get a return on that investment? Absolutely, it's been a tough market for the autos, tough for uh, many pockets of the market, but it, it certainly has been more challenging for the autos given the fact that sales are meaningfully higher than they were a year ago, and when they report their quarterly profits, 
they've generally been beating Wall Street expectations and generating that 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 great cash flow. Then it comes down to what are you doing with the cash flow for the shareholder? Back to his you know, uh, newsletter here. He has four bullet points at the end. He's very thankful for the Lions' best start since 1962. <laughs> now, now, Jamie, just don't ask me what the stock market did in 1962 because I looked it up. It wasn't so great. We'll take the Lions. We'll take Michigan's unemployment rate right at about 4%. Yeah. Pretty close to what the U.S. is. I'm glad for that. I'm glad that companies are still resilient in the face of some misguided fiscal policy. We find a way to manage through it and fight through it right? and be thankful. But as you point out, Cato Institute, Tax Foundation, and Site Selection all ranking Michigan at or near the top 10 for competitiveness. And We uh, need to stay there. And that's that's a good thing. And, yeah, we'll watchdog that, and I know you will too. I sure will. <laughs> Great resources for information for all the listeners. Enjoy yeah. the game. Enjoy the meal. And uh, we're thankful for your insights, David. My pleasure. Right back at you. All right, David Sowery, Managing Director at Ancora. When we come back, if you try to get an appointment with your doctor lately, you may have some trouble given the fact that we do have a primary care physician shortage. How bad is it? That's next on JR Morning at 749. So we know the pandemic upset a lot of things, including the health care delivery system here in the state of Michigan. We saw a lot of people, especially nurses, leave the health care field. I think we've got... Something like 8,500 openings right now and 50,000 nurses, licensed nurses that could fill those positions, but they aren't. Um, We've also got this issue of increasing waits to see a primary care physician. What's behind it? How do we fix it? And how bad are the delays? Nobody covers the healthcare industry in the state of Michigan uh, more comprehensively than Dustin Walsh at the Cranes Detroit Business. And we welcome Dustin in on this Wednesday morning. Hi there, Dustin. Hey, guy, how are you doing? Excellent. So how what, what were you hearing uh, that led to the story? How how bad are the wait times in, in offices around Metro Detroit? Well, really, it was it was people that had, you know, either didn't go see their primary care doctor during the pandemic. Obviously, that became hard. Either you were forced to do virtual or, um, you know, various other ways to do it. And so a lot of people were just trying to go back to a primary care doctor. And maybe they're like, you know what? I haven't seen him. I'm going to tr- try a new one. Um, and they just weren't able to get in. And then we kept hearing more calls about wait times, like you're seeing people having to wait six months, eight months, nine months to get into a primary care doctor. Um, and it just kept getting worse. And it's like, well, we knew that it was bad, you know, coming out of the pandemic. But, you know, we're sort of removed from that a little bit. Why isn't it improving? And so that's really the question and impetus that, that set out to kind of figure this out. Dustin, do we see that uh, a lot of doctors uh, who are coming out of medical school are going into more of the, you know, special fields as opposed to the the uh, uh, PCP fields because of, you know, they can make more money and they get better reimbursement? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So um, primary care physicians and pediatricians are among the lowest paid uh, physicians in the healthcare industry, if not the lowest paid. Um, so, you know, you typically don't see them, uh, you're not seeing the numbers sort of replacing them. We're seeing a lot of those doctors sort of aging out, right? Um, you know, I remember my, my primary care doctor when I was, you know, a teenager was, was probably in his seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of those people are sort of aging out of the market and there's not a, a replacement because they get paid so much less. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's a, it's a decent, decent salary. Um, but it's, it's, it's less than half as much as say a cardiologist makes or a neurologist. 
um, you know, those specialty jobs make considerably more money and have easier reimbursement um, than a primary care physician does. Dustin, so Michiganders are underserved. Is that because of some of our state laws as well in terms of reimbursement for doctors? Yeah, a lot of the reimbursement, it's really sort of dictated more on the federal side. You know, reimbursement's almost sort of dictated by um, um, by Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. You know, so those the, the Medicaid and the Medicare payments, you know, they've been they haven't kept up with sort of the inflationary costs of what it costs to to run an operation. Um, and and so obviously the the private healthcare insurers like the Blue Crosses and the Haps of the world have, have sort of kept pace with with CMS and and maintain. And so it's just harder and harder to get reimbursement, um, particularly as we're seeing more and more complex uh, conditions among people. We're seeing more chronic conditions. Um, that has to do with largely because our population in Michigan is getting older and also because we, we're, we're advancing medicine. We know more about the human body and, and human illnesses. And so we're finding more things that could be treated. Um, and really the reimbursement plate, you know, uh, the plate hasn't caught up to that. Dustin, when when you look at how we deliver health care, it has changed a lot since the pandemic. Some of it has to do with efficiency. Couldn't doctors see more patients, be more efficient, reduce those wait times if they embrace telehealth? Or hasn't that yielded the savings that they thought it would? Yeah, I think it depends on what side of the metric you're on. Um, you know, I think access is the most critical thing and important thing to people that run hospitals, that run healthcare uh, provider offices. And so to them, having, having an ability to go into your patient portal and message your doctor or to be able to have a telehealth visit really is, you know, hey, that increases access. That's sort of solving this problem. But the problem is that there's not enough doctors. And so now they're having to not only see a large patient panel um, full of patients every single day, um, you know, the average, I think the average doctor spends less than 10 minutes with each patient. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's not a lot of time to, to get to know your patient. And then they're having to answer the emails um, that come in via the patient portal and they're having to do the telehealth. And it's really just sort of adding layers to what a primary care physician has to do on an average day. How much uh, does student debt uh, drive a decision for a person on whether they go into primary care or not? No, oh, it has to because... You know, your student debt, if you're a primary care physician making, say, $185,000 versus a neurologist making $145,000, your, your debt load's largely the same um, through those schools. You know, it might be difference by, you know, here or there percentage points, um, but it's the same. And, you know, and you're racking up hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt to go to school, you know, your wage means something. Um, you know, it's, it, you often see residents, you know, sort of the, the quote-unquote intern doctors um, living in pretty paltry scenarios because they they have to get by until they can sort of pay off those loans, um, you know. So it's a it's a very high earning uh, profession, but it takes time to get to that space, right? Because um, because of sort of the debt load you had to go into for your education. There are state funded programs that help with student loan debt, are there not? Yes, there are other states. We we do have student loan debt um, programs here. They're less for doctors, and if they are for doctors, they're for doctors in rural places mm-hmm. um, because uh, it's we're really struggling to get doctors in in, in rural um, communities. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. One, maybe people don't want to live in a rural community, but also um, if you're a doctor in a rural community, you're largely doing a lot of things. Um, you know, you're not just a primary care doctor. You might be um, the ad hoc. Um, you know, doctor to see kids to see, you know, you're just doing a lot more and you're on call kind of 24 seven when you're sort of the only doctor in a region. Right. So 
um, it becomes a it becomes a harder sell, and those doctors are typically lower paid as well. So it's a harder sell to get people into into rural places. So there are um, programs to to sort of help uh, pay off student loans for doctors. But again, it's um, you know uh, that's not the only equation, right? Dustin, less than forty five seconds here. But what should be the big takeaway for patients, and is there anything they can do about this? Uh, no, um, I think uh, you know as we've sort of learned, you have to sort of take healthcare into your own hands. Um, so you can call around. You can find if you're really looking. You can find a doctor with less wait time. You know, so if if you're hey, I want to get into this particular location. Like say you go to U of M, they have a Northville location that's really booked up. Well, maybe you can get into their Brighton location, or maybe you can get into their Ann Arbor location. You know, you have to sort of pick and choose and find a doctor you want, and maybe a location that wasn't ideal for you if you really need to get into a primary care physician. Um, but in the in the meantime, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sucks for the doctor, but but go ahead and use those patient portals, use those emails, do the things that you need to do to try to get a, 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 a you know, an appointment. Good information. Dustin Walsh, thank you very much. Have a great Thanksgiving. You know, on any given day, you can go to the flight status page for Metro Airport, and you'll see one or two cancellations or delays, you know, just because. Right? right? Flight crews may not show up on time, something like that. I'm checking Metro, and on one of the busiest travel days of the year, not one delay, wow. not one cancellation, well, and I'm scared to mention it. Wasn't the airport voted one of the best? I was just going to say. Hello? <laughs> right, for on-time <laughs> arrivals and departures. That's right. So everything so far so good, and I'm, I'm afraid of jinxing it, but wanted to let you know that if you're going to be heading out to Metro... So far, everything is looking really good. And on Michigan roads, uh, no significant precipitation over Michigan anywhere. If you're traveling anywhere in the mitten right now, uh, head out, get her done, because it's, uh, it's looking mighty good. Meantime, we are rejoicing in the prospect that some of the youngest hostages, some of the most vulnerable hostages taken on October 7th in Israel by Hamas terrorists will hopefully soon be going home. Yeah, they say that this deal, you know, it's not a done deal and they don't want to celebrate until these people are actually back home. Mm -hmm. But 50 women and children who were taken by Hamas on October 7th should be coming home soon. Including little Abigail. Abigail, who is an American and two other American women supposedly will be a part of the 50 guy. Just three years old. Also, there's a nine month old that has been hostage. I've been thinking about those two little redheaded boys since (sighs) I saw the video. There's one nine months and the other one's got to be about two or three. So I'd like to see their faces, too. Right. And to see them uh, being hugged by their, their parents or in many cases, uh, whatever survivor is right. left yeah, in, right. in Abigail's one, yeah. case, you know, both mom and dad were murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, meantime, yesterday we were expecting the, the uh, Detroit City Council to take up the land use proposal from, from Mike Duggan. It was supposed to be debated and voted upon. Instead, they, they kind of went a different direction. They did. Detroit City Council members, they voted 7-2 to to support a resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza as the death toll in the Israel-Hamas war Past 13,000 people this month. Dozens of residents urged the city council to pass a measure yesterday during their meeting, giving impassioned public comments supporting the resolution introduced by council member Gabriela Santiago Romero. Santiago Romero calls Israel's bombardment in Gaza a genocide at last month's downtown rally in support of Palestinian civilians. The resolution states in part that Detroit's city council condemns all acts of violence aimed at Israeli and Palestinian civilians and mourns the loss of all civilian lives and hostages. Now, Detroit is the latest city council to consider a symbolic resolution related to the 
Israel-Hamas war. The Michigan cities of Dearborn and Dearborn Heights and Hamtramck, they've all passed resolutions calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Council members Mary Sheffield, Mary Waters, Santiago Romero, Angela Whitfield-Calloway, Letitia Johnson, Scott Benson, and Fred Dorhall III voted yes. James Tate and Coleman Young Jr. voted no. So everybody is mourning the loss of civilian lives, uh, both Israeli and Palestinian. But the notion that you would say um, we need a permanent ceasefire, what would you say to the Israeli families that then must live in fear because the very Hamas terrorists that murdered them, that committed atrocities on October 7th, are still in operation? Yeah, no, you can't do that. I mean, would you like to return to those homes? No way. No way. And, and that's I have the, to look over my shoulder every day. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the Mm-mm. nagging, inconvenient question no. for, for folks that want to virtue signal their way out of this, like members of the Detroit City Council. I admire the fact we all want peace. This is a generational problem and a ceasefire won't fix it. But reducing Hamas and then hitting reset and trying to get to a two state solution that uh, serves the needs of both the Palestinians and the Israelis. Um, you know, it, until Hamas is gone, that can't happen mm-hmm. because people can't. And they won't let it happen. Homes. They wouldn't let it happen. There is one problem, though, about the ideal ideology of it. You could bomb and get rid of the people that are there right now, but that could remain. That is an issue as well. Exactly. And there needs to be a question about what comes after. So we rejoice in this four day ceasefire that will result in an exchange of prisoners. There is a, a potential that if Hamas wants to release another 10 hostages, that ceasefire could be extended one day for every 10 hostages that are released. So there's an incentive here for them to release more. And hopefully that might even, I I wouldn't call it goodwill, but that could be an opening for further negotiations. In the meantime, we talked to Mike Rogers, and you can check out that interview at uh, thegreatvoice.com or stream it as you may be streaming this program. We thank you for doing that. Uh, But Mike Rogers said, look, two things are going to happen right now. Israel's going to gather a lot of intelligence from those returning Mm -hmm. hostages, and Hamas is going to be digging in, reconnoitering, and and making and hardening their positions as well. So there are some significant costs, but there are also some significant benefits here. We have to say, uh, yesterday we learned that we're going to say saying goodbye to one of our uh, 1984 Tiger heroes. That's right, Guy. Former Detroit Tigers relief pitcher Guillermo Willie Hernandez, who won the American League MVP Award, AL Cy Young Award, and World Series in 1984, has died. He was 69 years old. And uh, the Tigers released a statement saying they're deeply saddened to learn the passing of Willie Hernandez. Our thoughts are with his family, his friends, and his teammates. Uh, trivia, only three players have won the MVP, Cy Young, and World Series in the same season. If you know them, if you're thinking about it, Denny the McClain answer is, is one of them. Denny McLean. There's one more. Anyone? Sandy Koufax in 1963. McLean was 1968. And Hernandez was in 1984. And they were both starting pitchers, mm-hmm. Sandy and Denny. You're right. Um, he's the only reliever Relief, that's right, right. ever. That's right. Yeah. His ERA in 1984 was 1.92. He had 32 saves. Alan Trammell released this. Well, he talked to the free press and he said, Hernandez was our stud. We certainly would not have won the championship without him. And Lynn Henning, who has forgotten more baseball more than any than any of us will ever know, <laughs> yeah. said that in 1984, they knew they had a good team in 83, but it was the acquisition of Willie Hernandez. That was the missing piece. That was the key piece 
in making that championship run. They got started with 16 and 4 that year. They Six, led wire to wire. 35 and 5. Yeah. I mean, that's just amazing. <laughs> I think 192 when you think of ERAs today. Yeah. That's amazing. Right. Especially since you know they've got they're so loaded with talent and the platooning that goes on. It's a tougher thing, but Willie Hernandez RIP. Yeah, RIP and thanks uh for that championship. Why don't we go out and get another uh, uh, let's do it. It's about that time. That'd be great. There's a lot of positive things in the Tigers right now. There's a lot of money off the books. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, let's see what these new guys can do. Right. We've got a little football game uh, happening tomorrow. We'll be uh, ginning up for that about this time. By the way, the uh, weather forecast looking good for folks going down to the parade. Uh, the temperatures will be getting into the 40s. We'll get up to almost 50 by probably the end of the parade. Right. That's but- Really great weather. It is, and calm. You know, not as not as uh, high winds. So good for the balloons. Good for the balloons, and it's you know, there's got to be a little <laughs> bit of chill in the air. I mean, when Santa comes, you know, in, you, you want him to feel comfortable. Absolutely. You know, you know, he's in from the North Pole. You don't want him to be too warm. He doesn't have to layer up. <laughs> that's, right. That's, that's right. I think I think like like Santa, I've already layered up, and that's part of the, <laughs> part of the problem. Uh, when we come back at eight nineteen, Graham Filler going to be discussing this new legislation that yes, will protect uh, pr- protect abused women uh, by taking the guns away from their abusers. But does the redefinition of abuse and the felonies that would trigger the taking away of those weapons? Does it go too far, and does it infringe on the Second Amendment rights of those who may be affected? He's got some very strong but thoughtful uh, reflections on that. We will talk to him next on JR Morning. By the way, listen today, and you can win tickets to Spartans football. How about being caller number nine right now at 1-800-859-0957, 1-800-859-0WJR. We got four tickets. A four-ticket pack to see Michigan State Spartan football. They're taking on Penn State 7.30 on Friday evening at Ford Field. Great game, great venue. You don't have to go up I-96 to enjoy it. Uh, Just be calling number 9 at 1-800-859-0WJR. I have had friends personally in this position where uh, they have a daughter whose boyfriend or uh, husband has physically abused them. There has been a conviction. They get a personal protection order, but it really isn't worth the paper it's printed on because that abuser still has access to guns. There is no feeling of safety as long as that happens. Well, there has been a new package of bills that were signed into a law on Monday that would crack down on gun possession by domestic violence offenders. It should make uh, instances and circumstances like that, we would hope, safer and prevent needless loss of life, and not to mention peace of mind. But the way it was crafted and some of the definitions are so broad that it can take guns away from people that are neither abusers nor even convicted felons, or the felony is quite nonviolent. That troubles uh, many gun rights advocates, among them one of the most reasonable, thoughtful members of our legislature. Graham Filler is a Republican from Clinton County, representing Michigan's 93rd District, and he joins us live this morning. Graham, it's always a pleasure to connect with you. Good to have you with us. Absolutely. I love coming on this show. I love that you take on sort of big, nuanced issues, too, and this uh, this is one of them. 
Talk to me that when, when this was going through the process and you were looking at some of the definitions coming out, did you raise objections? Did you raise concerns? And we'll get to those concerns in a moment. Just, but just tell me about how this bill came about and whether or not amendments were considered. Yeah, so actually, I'll go a little further back. This was brought to me when I did chair the Judiciary Committee, and people called it a quote-unquote boyfriend loophole where an individual could be convicted of domestic violence and then have access to firearms. And we seriously considered it, and we um, we tried to work across the aisle. Uh, didn't find a lot of movement. But then this term, it came up again. I said, okay, now we're going to look at it again. However, this time it was written in such an aggressive manner that it goes much, much further than the boyfriend loophole concept into basically taking gun rights away from uh, many, many Michiganders. And so during committee, we asked uh, three questions. Question one, uh, why do misdemeanors, why are misdemeanors treated more aggressively than felonies under this bill? Felonies, typically you lose your gun rights for three to five years, and this bill is eight years. And the answer given to us was not satisfactory and still does not make sense to me. Felony is clearly serious, more serious than a misdemeanor. Um, and the second question we asked is, if you get in a uh, bar fight with an old roommate from college 25 years later, under this bill, you are now a domestic violence offender. And we felt those instances did not make any sense um, and did not seriously go to the problem that we were supposed to be taking on, which was cracking down on domestic violence. The third thing we brought up was the incredible scope uh, as written um, regarding new crimes that individuals, if convicted, would lose their gun rights. And we're talking about white collar crimes. We're talking about um, uh, no victim crimes. We're talking about false statements on an application, um, gambling offenses, uh, disorderly conduct. We're talking about things that don't have anything to do with domestic violence. And um, the uh, majority party, was not interested in any of the amendments, and the bill passed as written. So that's where we're at now. Representative, do you see a legal challenge coming? Because I know uh, federally there's a, a, a legal challenge in the U.S. Supreme Court, and if that goes through, will that have an effect on the on the uh, bill that was passed here in Michigan and others? I think there will be a legal challenge. I think um, the, the folks who wanted this bill could have avoided the legal challenge if they'd written it narrowly and sort of more in line with what the public talks about when they talk about domestic violence offense. But I do expect a legal challenge, yeah. From who? You know, we've, we've yet to see. And I do believe the Supreme Court uh, upcoming decision may have an effect on this. So it's a little bit uh, up in the air. Uh, Graham, <clears throat> they might have gotten more bipartisan support simply for the domestic violence aspect of it, because a woman is more likely fivefold to get killed if there is a gun involved, and people support that. How did the redefinition come about? And did you see any like draft before this came to a vote? No, this was not a this was not viewed as a a bipartisan um, uh, a, a bipartisan process. And I will just tell you, and have, have been on the show before talking about this. When you had a Democratic governor and Republican House and Senate, there was everything was negotiated, everything was back and forth. Uh, now that you don't, even though you have very very slim majorities in the House and the Senate. Um, a lot of these bills come from groups who have just, um, 
who have just said we've waited for a long time and it's time for this bill to pass. And so there's not a lot of uh, back and forth. Um, and so I'm not sure that a lot of the Democrats who voted yes are aware of the incredibly broad definition um, of these bills. I want to ask you something that, that broke yesterday, and and that is this uh, battery plant down in Marshall. Significant millions of dollars in state incentives were were offered to get that plant built here in the state of Michigan. Now Ford is going to scale back the productive capacity of that by about forty two percent. The the Whitmer administration and MEDC both said that incentives will be rebated back to the state because it's not going to deliver the jobs that we thought it would. Are you confident that will happen? Well, I hope it does. I will just tell you, uh, because I've got really strong thoughts about this, I'm a big supporter of of incentives, of um, saying, come to Michigan because we've created a better job atmosphere. Don't go to Indiana. Um, And when this came about, uh, our caucus sat down, had really nuanced conversations and said two things. Number one, the, the giveaway to Ford was too much. We could get on board. We support Ford, um, but it was too much. And number two, uh, it's, it's EV based and the EV field is a mess right now. And people are not buying EVs. We understand that maybe if you make it in Michigan, you ship it to Europe or you ship it somewhere else. We get it's a global market chain, but um, it's not going well. And so why are we pumping this amount of money into a site that wasn't even wanted by the site where it was being put in um, and the deal doesn't look like a good one? Not all deals are created equal. And so this feels like a lot of our predictions coming true, because when I look at that, some of the statements made yesterday uh, by Ford and others, I think they're seeing what we're seeing, which is the EV market is in turmoil and folks are not buying them to the extent that maybe once people believed in them, uh, and and yet we're going to build this plant built on your taxpayer dollars uh, with, with what I view as not a good deal. So I, I feel like a lot of our predictions came true, um, and uh, I hope that that money is refunded to the state. All right. And, yeah, and how much? And I know uh, Matt Hall, the, the leadership on your side of the – of the house has said that he would like a, a lot of it rebated if not all graham filler had a wonderful thanksgiving and thanks for being with us by the way congratulations to ryan from trenton and mike from grand rapids they have learned that you can be winners by listening to jr morning and uh, they've got now a f- f- four pack of tickets to see michigan state take on Penn State at Ford Field Friday night at 730. Um, certainly, as you're getting ready to cook the Thanksgiving feast, there is no shame in calling the Butterball Hotline. <laughs> All of us have done it That's at one right. time or another. We've got those uh, cooking dilemmas, especially if you're kind of a newbie, newbie to it. But we did come across these lists <laughs> of uh, some really funny questions that, that people have asked over the years that the Butterball Hotline people have shared with us. And, and, and Jamie... Um, all right, I'm going to start. You have one to share? Yes. A gentleman called to tell the operator he cut his turkey in half with a chainsaw and wanted to know if the oil from the chain would adversely affect the turkey. <laughs> the talk line wouldn't re- recommend serving a turkey with chainsaw grease. Instead, let your turkey rest at least 20 minutes after cooking to make carving easier. Then use a carving knife in your kitchen. Or maybe just use cooking oil in your chainsaw. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and Lloyd? 
Well, a Kentucky mother had followed Butterball's instructions for roasting a turkey, and everything seemed to be going pretty smoothly. The bird came out of the oven golden brown, but there was a strange bright red color when she started to carve it. Turns out her son had helped her season the turkey with Legos. <gasps> and she oh. wanted to know if it was still safe to eat. Oh, <laughs> oh my. How? Like he put it inside? He must have put it inside the turkey. <laughs> you got to monitor those kids when they're helping you cook. Um, one disappointed woman called, uh, kind of angry, actually, to Butterball saying, uh, my turkey has no breast meat, no white meat. Uh, please explain why. Well, after a short conversation with a talk line operator, it became apparent that the turkey was lying on the table upside down. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, yeah, people. yeah, as you're oh, carving boy. that bird, if you get mostly bone and dark meat, turn, turn, turn the gobbler over. over. <laughs> okay. Also, another one, I a guy asked, can I thaw my turkey safely on my car luggage rack? Apparently, they were on the way to grandma's, hadn't had time to thaw the turkey, oh. thought that Putting it on the luggage rack seemed like a good idea. Yeah, sure. Yeah, if you want to baste it in royal <laughs> road debris. There are really, a... if, if you have time, go search these Butterball oh, hotlines. It's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, Reader's Digest has one. Delish has one. And, yeah, it's, if, if, if you're struggling in the kitchen, it'll make, maybe take some of the pressure off you and give you a good chuckle. Uh, we are anticipating feasting on some football tomorrow as our 8-2 Lions take on the Green Bay Packers at Ford Field for really one of Detroit's greatest traditions, which is Thanksgiving football. Steve Courtney, WJR Sports Analyst, joining us live with a preview of uh, that, to use his favorite word, tilt. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Guy, Lloyd, Jamie. Hello again, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving Eve. This conversation Brought to you by the hardworking men and women at Bill Brown Ford. Forward down the field, the W's are stacking up, and the winged wheelers back on the home ice tonight. My good friend Matt Garko and his team are stacking wins each and every day. Drive with the champions at Bill Brown Ford. Shop their TrueView inventory at BillBrownFord.com today. All right, tomorrow, your Detroit Lions will be playing in their 84th Thanksgiving Day game. Now, of note, the Lions go in 8-2. and two. They have that mark for the first time since 1962. Now, the Lions have played in every Thanksgiving Day game since 1934. Overall record, 37-44-2. and two. Uh, But there's been a little bit of a drought when it comes to a W on this special day. The Lions last won on Thanksgiving back in 2016 when they beat the people eaters, the Minnesota Vikings, 16-13. Now, uh, the Packers are in town. Remember, I know you do, Guy, from 1951 through 1963, the Thanksgiving Day game was nothing but the Packers. This will be the first uh, Thanksgiving tilt with Green Bay on Thanksgiving Day since 2013 when the Lions won 40-10. Hopefully, uh, that little trend continues. Truth of the matter is, Jordan Love and the Packers just kind of hanging around in the NFC North. They come in 4-6. and six. Uh, I mentioned what your Lions have been up to. Here's the thing about Jordan Love. He threw for his first 300-yard game last week, uh, finishing with 322 yards and two touchdowns in the win over the Chargers. Uh, now, as far as the running game goes, you got to account for A.J. Dillon. Dillon is averaging 40-and-a-half yards per game. Uh, Green Bay, though, uh, 
they prefer playing at Lambeau. They are a one and four football team on the road. Uh, they are 21st in the league in scoring with 20.2 points per game. The Lions, meanwhile, we know everything about them in their high-powered offense, and cer- uh, certainly they hope to get back on track. Uh, kind of a lackluster uh, performance. Jared Goff throwing a few picks along the way. Uh, Lions coming back uh, against the Bears, 17 points in all. Uh, it was indeed a big, big win. He is Having a strong season, Mr. Goff averaging 274.3 yards per game and uh, a 16 touchdown to 8 pick ratio. The Lions running game, absolutely sound. David Montgomery averaging uh, 82.4 yards per game with 8 scores. The rookie Jameer Gibbs averaging 64 yards per game with 5 touchdowns. The Lions ranked 6 in the National Football League in scoring with a 27.2 point per game average. So uh, a lot to look forward to here, folks. Uh, Lions favored by 7.5 right now. Make no mistake about it, uh, the uh, Green Bay Packers kind of finding their groove a little bit. Going to be a dandy. Steve, Dan Campbell has a unique perspective about Thanksgiving games. He played for Dallas, he played for the Lions, and now he's coaching the Lions. And he said just playing on Thanksgiving is just something special. You know, it's an interesting point, Gene, um, because it wasn't all that long ago uh, when the Lions were going through the dark days. There was some scuttlebutt in the NFL to kind of take the Thanksgiving Day game away. Uh, Well, it's a tradition here, and it has been for a while. And the same holds true for the Dallas Cowboys. So what the NFL did uh, to appease the other franchises was add that Thanksgiving Day night game. Uh, And let's look at it this way, uh, because it's the honest truth. Uh, Thanksgiving football here in Detroit, absolutely huge. Been around it for years. The same can't be said for a lot of other cities uh, in the National Football League, but they still have that uh, night game to uh, kind of appease uh, some other franchises. I'm just glad that I don't have to listen to my relatives in other states complain about having to watch the Lions on Thanksgiving. No. Yeah. They now they want to watch people them. want yeah. to see the Lions. Exactly. That, that script has flipped. Steve, got to ask you, uh, Scott Mitchell, sour grapes over the Bye Bye Barry documentary. Apparently there were some things said that, you know, uh, they could have probably made it to the Super Bowl or deeper into the playoffs had they had a better quarterback. Um, While the rest of us were holding up our index finger saying Barry's number one, he was holding up a different one. Your thoughts on on Scott Mitchell? Well, you know what? Scott Mitchell, uh, during his stay as a Lion, was uh, rather polarizing, wasn't he? I mean, he was brought in as a free agent. The story he says, you know, Wayne Fonts basically begged him uh, to sign with the Lions. And then, of course, uh, during his stay here, there was the uh, infamous uh, Mickey Mouse ears fiasco uh, where he was kind of making fun of Wayne. Um, And uh, the honest-to-goodness truth uh, his stay here in Detroit uh, was not memorable. Um, he uh, made lots of mistakes. And I thought for him to spit the venom uh, that he did yeah. uh, was uh, was kind of crazy. Um, it was pretty know, look, aggressive. He was like, you know, look at my playoff record. Well, how about Barry's playoff record? How many yards did he have? Like, super aggressive. Yeah, and you know what, Jamie? You know, it was kind of, uh, you know, uncalled for because, you know, Please, Scott Mitchell, don't put yourself 
in a category here in Detroit, you know, with the great Barry Sanders, because you're going to lose that every time, every time, every time, uh, (laughs) you know, we know exactly what Barry did. And, um, you know, some look at Barry's career here in Detroit uh, a little bit wasted um, because there will never be another Barry Sanders uh, at all. I was just looking at a highlight package last night and it's uh, just incredible. Uh, But for Scott Mitchell today, and I'm sure maybe, uh, you know, he kind of regrets saying what he did, but, you know, there for a while, I'm sure he had the best of intentions, but it didn't pan out for Scott Mitchell here. That's for sure. Well, Can we just contrast his style of play to Matt Stafford's? Think of the number of times that Mitchell was on the sidelines with injuries that Matt Stafford played through mm-hmm. and got great results. Mm-hmm. And, he, and and Mitchell was God, he, he was twice the size of Matt. You know, he was a huge guy. And yet he he never capitalized on that and never had the toughness uh, that, that other quarterbacks, even Jared Goff, has, has dis, uh, displayed at times. Steve, enjoy your bird tomorrow. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Yeah, you guys uh, enjoy it with you and yours. I got my uh, group up from Georgia, the... Uh, daughter, son-in-law, my uh, two grandsons, and uh, three-month-old Mela, uh, granddaughter, looking forward to it, and uh, all the best to you and yours. All right. Take care. When we come back, uh, the Marshall Battery Plant downsized quite significantly. What does that mean to the EV transition, and are we going to see the big three pay a steep financial penalty for maybe overestimating the market demand for EVs? That's next. Ford Motor Company is scaling back plans for a $3.5 billion battery plant in Marshall, Michigan, as consumers shift to electric vehicles more slowly than expected. Labor costs rise, and the company moves to cut costs. Let's talk more about that with Paul Eisenstein. He's senior contributing editor for Headlight.News. Paul, good morning. Happy holiday to you ahead of time. Yes, happy holiday to you. So now... They're going to be cutting, Ford said they're going to cut production capacity by roughly 43% to 20 gigawatt hours per year and reduce the expected employment from 2,500 jobs to 1,700 jobs. Yeah, uh, that's still a fairly big plant. Let, let's face that. We're talking about the capacity uh, to build over 200,000 electric vehicles using the batteries out of that plant. So so it's not like they are expecting EV sales to dry up. And by the way, let me let me just make one thing clear because there's been a lot of misunderstanding of what's going on out there in the EV market. The rate of growth has slowed. Not it's not the case where people are cutting back. The EV market is not shrinking. We're going to see EV sales this year reach 1 million in the U.S. alone for the first time ever. So people still will buy these EVs coming out of the Marshall plant. You're just saying it's the rate of growth is slower. Yeah, and, and consider this. The EVs were less than 1% of the U.S. market as recently as 2019. It's the retail side of the market right now, it's 8.5%. That means better than one out of every 12 vehicles is electric already. And we are still just beginning to see the EV market come alive. It's 850% growth in just four years. The rate is slowing. And part of that is people are waiting for a few things to happen, such as getting more chargers out there, mm-hmm. getting more vehicles out there. And, yes, also starting to see more affordable EVs. So, Paul, I, I, I agree with you that this is maybe not the harbinger of doom that, that some are painting it to be. But the problem does become that if it grows more slowly, 
will it ever reach the level at you know to meet these somewhat arbitrary deadlines the Biden administration and some uh, state governments have put on the automakers um you I know see, just I you, see, if you build it they don't necessarily come no I, I i think that there will be a little bit of an out of sync issue you may recall uh, there was a period uh, 20 some years ago 25 years ago when suvs we're just starting to click and there was a disconnect between everybody rushing out there to build all these new EVs, uh, SUVs, I mean, uh, and these crossovers and, and the market actually catching up. And now today they can barely keep up with it. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of changes in the next few years. And there seems to be little doubt that EV sales will grow. Will they hit 50% by the end of the decade? Not clear. It's not clear if they will, but I, I can see nothing that indicates to me that we won't see substantial growth. Mm-hmm. Remember, California is always a harbinger of what happens in the market. It always follows California. Same with SUVs, crossovers, pickups, everything. California is at 25% EVs right now. Paul, what happens uh, to the automakers? They're investing uh, you know, all these uh, millions and billions of dollars, but they won't be getting that kind of money back. No, they won't right away. And uh, you have heard from Ford and GM so far saying that they're adjusting plans. Not surprising. They've adjusted plans on uh, sedans. Uh, They made major changes over the last few years. We've seen them change, move away from conventional SUVs to car-based crossovers. This is Everybody wants to make this this doom and gloom scenario, and it's not. The industry always adapts and adjusts to changes in market trends. They also pick up what they expect for the next few years. I, I see nothing in this that should be coming as a shock. Yes, the rate of growth is slowed, but the rate of growth is still there. Uh, and again, 1 million for the first time ever, mm-hmm. and 850% increase in retail sales nationally of EVs in just four years. So yeah, the rate of growth is slowed. They're still expensive. They're still uh, losing money. There's no question on this. And so the industry will adjust accordingly. One of the critical things will be getting a network of chargers out there so people feel more comfortable, even though 90% of people charge at home and seldom if ever use public chargers. I've used one since I owned the, uh, the Lightning I bought the Lightning in August of 2022. I've used public chargers three times, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I would like them to be more available for trips up north. Mm -hmm. So we're going to see things happen. We're going to see less expensive vehicles. We're going to see better batteries. Several manufacturers have announced plans to roll them out by around mid-decade or early in uh, in the second half of the decade. So all these things are reason why I can understand people saying, I'm interested, but I'm going to hold off a year or two or three. Yeah, I'm just concerned financially that without getting a return or getting to the economies of scale that we had hoped for, that by putting this off down the road, that we're really going to see higher losses than what were anticipated. But as you say, the the market, the the, the automakers have been uh, tried to be better at adjusting to these things. Paul, have a wonderful holiday and thanks for, for joining us this morning. Great to be with you. Happy right. holidays to you all. And to you. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, and by the way, we've got a great piece that we did with Mobility Makers yesterday. A lot of you that are going to be renting cars, maybe if you're taking off to visit friends, you may be getting an EV even though you didn't ask for one because there are so many now that are in the fleets. Mm. And they don't off, off you know, you may find yourself at the, at the rental counter 
and all they've got left is EVs. Mm-hmm. So you need to plan ahead. We've got a great piece on thegreatvoice.com with Joanne Muller. You can find it under the JR Morning page where she tells you as a uh, rental car customer what you need to know should you find yourself driving an EV unexpectedly. And if you bring it, when you bring it back, you can uh, pay uh, a, a price, and they will charge it up for you if you bring it back half charge. Instead oh, it's of still you. a price. Yeah. Okay. But don't no. forget to ask. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Do I need to bring it back charged? That's right. Yeah. Uh, there will be a lot of wrinkles in, in this transition. You know what I was thinking of how exciting downtown's going to be? You got the Lions. You got Michigan State. Then you got all the high school championships at Ford Field. You got the parade. You got your family in town. It's just very exciting. It is going to be. And Santa. And Santa coming <laughs> to town. Oh, 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 oh. And as we count our many blessings, can I just say having you guys on this show is just the, the one of the biggest blessings for the year. We feel the same yes. about you. I'm happy to be here, And uh, for those of you that are listening and have uh, given us your attention over the past uh, four months as we've been rebooting this, we thank you for listening, for streaming, and for being with us. We hope you and yours have a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving. Take care.